0: The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, thank you for inviting me back to be with you this morning. And, uh, you know, I'm the founder of Reasons to Believe. If you're new here, I'm an astrophysicist, uh, but I've also served as on the pastoral staff of a church that's sandwiched between California Institute of Technology and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We're also really close to the headquarters of the Skeptic Society, so we have an interesting crowd that comes with us uh, every uh, Sunday morning. And we've actually seen a number of those atheists come to faith in Christ, so. And uh, this, yeah, thank you. And uh, Reasons to Believe, the organization I've founded, we have all kinds of social media outlets. Uh, We have a 24-7 YouTube channel, so feel free to subscribe. It's all free. And at the uh, book table out there, let me see if I can get this to work. Here we go, yes. We're giving away a copy of my book, Always Be Ready. So uh, just scan that QR code or go to the table out at the back, and they'll give you a free copy uh, of my book, Always Be Ready. But what I want to share with you today is about my latest book. I've now put out 22 books, and this is the fifth book uh, that I have written on uh, the fine-tuning argument. Let me see if I can move this again. Here we go. Uh, Maybe not. Let me try this. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, nothing's happening here. There we go, okay. and Okay, wrong direction. I have to go down. Okay. There we go. All right, I think I got it. Yeah, I've produced five books now on the fine-tuning argument for God. Traditionally, that's been the go-to scientific argument uh, for the existence of God. It goes all the way back to the early Church Fathers. But what I want to share with you is how we can develop an exponentially stronger fine-tuning argument for God, and it's based on the biblical principle that God began his works of redemption before he created anything at all. And yes, I think we're working well there, uh, that it tells us in 2 Timothy one nine that the Uh, grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And in Titus 1, 2, the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. This is just two of seven texts in the Bible that tells us, number one, that time has a beginning. And I spoke yesterday at a conference basically laying out the evidence that we now have that time indeed was created. The space-time theorems prove that there's a beginning to space and time. And of all the holy books that undergird the religions of the world, the Bible stands alone in saying, not only does the universe have a beginning, time is a beginning, space is a beginning. But what the Bible tells us is that God began His works of redemption before He created anything at all the grace that we receive, the hope that we get, was actually put into effect before the beginning of time. In other words, before the triune God created anything at all, they worked out their plan of how they were going to bring billions of human beings into a redemptive relationship where they would be delivered from their sin and evil and enter into an eternal relationship, loving relationship with their creator himself. What this implies scientifically, if indeed Uh, God began his works of redemption before he created anything. It implies that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. Now, what I've seen amongst my peers in astronomy and physics, they will observe the universe and its characteristics and they discover that many of those characteristics must be fine-tuned to make life possible. And the fine-tuning is even more spectacular if you want the equivalent of human beings to exist in the universe. But I don't know of any work until this design to the core book that actually puts it in a redemptive context. What does the fine-tuning need to be like for billions of human beings to redeem from their sin and evil? So what I've done in the book design to the core is say, well, let's look at the universe at all different size scales, from the universe as a whole, all the way down to the objects that are right close up to us, the comets, the asteroids, the moon, the earth, the sun, the interior structures of all these objects, that test to see whether or not is is really designed with redemption in mind. And that's exactly uh, what I've been able to demonstrate. Spent three years going through the scientific literature and indeed we see that the fine-tuning argument for God increases exponentially when we put it in the context of what's needed to make possible the redemption of billions of humans from their sin and evil in a short period of time. Now, the opening chapter, I talk about uh, the universe, how we need a just-right universe, and uh, this is something that's been written about in many books. I've got over 50 books in my library, uh, written mainly by people who are not believers, how when we look at the universe, we see overwhelming evidence that has been highly fine-tuned to make possible the existence of life, and human beings in particular. But what I've added is how much the universe has to be designed in order to make the redemption of human beings possible. In particular, we discover that each of the laws of physics, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear force, uh, the size of the universe, the age of the universe, the mass of the universe, all that must be exquisitely fine-tuned in order to make redemption possible. The laws of physics themselves are chosen by God as a tool to bring about the redemption of humanity. We need gravity, we need thermodynamics. Jesus himself said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Tribulation, that's an inevitable consequence of gravity, electromagnetism, thermodynamics, and the strong and weak nuclear force. We'll have that in this universe. But what we see in the Bible is it's a two-creation model. Uh, God will uh, use this universe as a tool to eradicate evil and suffering once and for all, and then He'll take us into a new creation. But we see in Revelation 21 and 22, in the new creation, there is no death, there is no decay. We have a building in the new creation that defies the law of gravity. There will be no gravity. There will be no electromagnetic radiation. There will be light. Everything will glow with light, but there'll be no darkness, there'll be no shadows. We're going to be introduced to radically different laws of physics because we no longer need the laws of physics we see or the universe in which we live uh, because evil and suffering will no longer exist. Uh, but what we'll also see is we have to be in a just-right uh, super-galaxy uh, cluster. And only in the last few years have we astronomers even be able to define what a super galaxy cluster is, it's a cluster of clusters of galaxies. But only recently we've been able to discern the structure and the boundaries of these super galaxy clusters. I'll show you a few images in a minute. And we have to be living in a just right uh, galaxy, and a just right uh, galaxy uh, cluster, and a just right galaxy group, and we need to be living in a just right galaxy. Life is only possible in a spiral galaxy. Other galaxies, the stars are jammed way too tightly together in order for stable orbits of planets to go about stars and for those planets to be protected from radiation. Now, we astronomers have been looking throughout the entire universe, trying to find a galaxy sufficiently like our Milky Way galaxy that it could be a candidate for advanced life. Those of you who are Star Wars fans, I want to disappoint you. There is no galaxy far, far away. We've looked far, far away. We don't see any. But what I've done in the book is to show you the 18 galaxies that come the closest to matching our Milky Way galaxy in its capacity to support life. I'll show you 11 of them uh, this morning. And so what we see here, uh, let me move it up. There we go, Uh, maybe. Ah, here we go. The upper left one you might recognize, that's what's called our sister galaxy, it's the Andromeda galaxy. However, when you look carefully at that uh, image, you notice that the spiral arms are distorted, the outer spiral arms are as big as the inner spiral arms, and it also has a very active, and uh, has a very large supermassive black hole in its core. And these other spiral galaxies you'll notice uh, that the spiral arms are distorted, and there's lots of fur's and spurs and feathers between the spiral arms. Here are some galaxies that come even closer. In fact, the one that you see in the uh, center upper, that's the galaxy that comes the closest to matching our Milky Way galaxy. But it has a supermassive black hole in its core that is actively pulling in matter, and it basically is radiating the entire galaxy uh, with dangerous radiation and also you can see that the spiral arms are distorted. The Milky Way galaxy is in the bottom right. You can see how symmetrical the spiral arms are, how few feathers and spurs exist between the spiral arms, and unlike these other spiral galaxies, it's got a quiet nucleus. It's not pouring out uh, deadly uh, radiation. And we not only need a just right galaxy, we need a just right uh, star. And so, Let me move this along. And what we're noticing as we go from the super galaxy cluster to our galaxy uh, cluster, our galaxy group, our galaxy, our star, our planet, our moon, in each case as we survey the entirety of the universe, we're not finding anything that's anywhere like it. Each case, uh, our star, is unique. It's unique in the sense that, for 70 years, astronomers have been scouring our Milky Way galaxy, looking at tens of millions of stars, doing the same thing in the Andromeda galaxy and the largest small Magellanic clouds, searching intently to find a star that's sufficiently like the Sun that it could be a candidate to have a planet orbiting it and which advanced life is possible. We have found many stars that are twins of one another, but we've yet to find a star that's a twin of the Sun. It's the only star we've found that's a candidate to have advanced life orbiting it. And it was back in 1995 that astronomers uh, discovered planets orbiting other stars. And uh, they were excited and saying, we're going to find hundreds of planets that are just like the planets in our solar system. Well, here we are in 2022. The number of discovered and measured planets now stands above 5,000. And uh, of those 5,000, not a single one looks anything like any of the planets in our solar system. Not only have we not been able to find a twin of planet Earth, we have not been able to find a twin of Mercury, of Venus, of Mars, of Jupiter, Saturn, or Uranus, and Neptune. And this led to a discovery uh, that Each of the planets in our solar system must be exquisitely fine-tuned to make advanced life possible on planet Earth. Mercury must be exactly the way it is. Venus must be exactly the way it is. Mars and all the rest of the planets must be precisely uh, the characteristics that they possess in order for advanced life to be possible here on planet Earth. So, come Thanksgiving next month, I want you not only to thank God for our amazing planet Earth, but please thank God also for Mercury and Venus and Mars, Uranus, Neptune, because without those planets being precisely the way they are, there'd be no possibility for you to have uh, Thanksgiving dinner uh, on your table. And it's not just that the eight planets in our solar system all must be exquisitely fine-tuned. This is even true of the asteroid and comet belts that we see in our solar system. We have five of these asteroid and comet belts, and now we've got the technology to discover asteroid and comet belts around other stars, and what we discover is 80% of the stars we look at do not have any asteroids or comets at all. And we now know why. Their gas giant planets uh, migrate so far inward uh, towards the host star, they basically eradicate or erase or scatter out all the asteroids and comets. And then the other 20 percent, their gas giant planets don't migrate at all. And consequently, they have asteroid and comet belts a thousand times bigger than we see in our solar system. And if you've got a thousand times as many asteroids and comets, that means we're going to get regular bombardments of our planet uh, by these comets and asteroids. And that would make uh, civilization rather unpleasant to have these things crashing into the earth all the time. Uh, You know, one wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, so you don't want that happening every day. On the other hand, you don't want any delivery at all, because our planet has a mass where the gravity is strong enough to retain carbon dioxide, strong enough to retain oxygen, but it's barely strong enough to retain water and so we actually lose a tiny amount of water to interplanetary space every day. But that tiny amount of water that we lose is replaced by the water we gain from comets. About 10,000 tiny comets bombard our Earth every day, and comets are 85% frozen water, so we get a delivery of water that replaces the water that we lose. And moreover, we get the occasional asteroid crashing into the Earth, and many of these asteroids are super endowed with heavy elements. So, for example, 80% of the gold and platinum that's in circulation today comes from an asteroid that crashed just outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. 50% of the nickel in circulation today comes from an asteroid uh, that crashed on the north shore of Lake Huron, uh, near Sudbury, Ontario. So, we are blessed by having just the right delivery of asteroids and comets to planet Earth, and of course we need a just right Earth. Uh, Over 400 characteristics of the Earth must be fine-tuned to make advanced life possible, and we have a just right moon. And now we know that 23 distinct characteristics of the moon must be fine-tuned. So one example is uh, our planet Earth has a stable rotation axis tilt. It moves between 22 and about 24 and a half degrees uh, back and forth over a 41,000-year period. That's possible because we have a small planet being orbited by a gigantic moon. That's what stabilizes the rotation axis. tilt. all the rest of the planets in our solar system, the rotation axis does this, flips back and forth. And so we have the stable rotation axis. That's just one of the features we gain from the moon. Now, I mentioned earlier that we've just gained the technology to define super-galaxy clusters, and I want to show you a slide of the map of the super-galaxy cluster in which we live. Let me see if I can advance this. Here we go. There you go. That's the Lanakaya super-galaxy cluster. It's a cluster of clusters of galaxies. But what's unique about our Laniakea super galaxy cluster is the galaxy clusters and galaxy groups are strung out along these long filaments. And so that little red dot there basically shows where our local group of galaxies exists. It's at the nexus of three subfilaments. If you're not near a filament or a subfilament, there won't be enough tiny dwarf galaxies there to s- sustain the spiral structure. But notice that we're in a grouping of galaxies that's in the least dense part of the super supergalaxy cluster. And we're living in the smallest galaxy group of all the galaxy groups that exist. And notice that the big clusters of galaxies are all tilted way over to the right. Uh, the Virgo cluster, the Centaurus cluster, the Hydra cluster, those are clusters where you've got so many galaxies jammed so tightly together that many of those galaxies have really huge supermassive black holes that basically radiate not the entire galaxy with deadly radiation, but even all the galaxies in its vicinity. Fortunately, we're 53 million light-years away from the nearest one of those nasty supermassive black holes, far enough away that it doesn't disturb our civilization. Now, we astronomers have found tens of thousands of these super galaxy clusters in the universe, but this is the only one where we see the galaxies and galaxy groups strung out along these long filaments. It's the only one where the galaxy groups are relatively small, and even the galaxy clusters are not that big. Let me show you a typical super galaxy cluster. This is the Shapley uh, super galaxy cluster, and here you see. You've got these big clusters of galaxies jammed so tightly together uh, that you really don't have any voids, you really can't see any filaments there, and uh, it's filled, uh, because of the density of galaxies, it's filled with these supermassive black holes that radiate deadly radiation, and the galaxies are so close together, they're gravitationally disturbing one another. And this is typical of super galaxy clusters. So, for example, we see the Perseus-Pisces supergalaxy cluster, uh, the Leo supergalaxy cluster. The one that comes the closest to matching our super supergalaxy cluster is the one in Ursa Major. And uh, what we see here is that, yes, we do have galaxy clusters strung out along a, an arcing uh, uh, filament, but notice how big these super, or the uh, clusters of galaxies are and how close together they are. And uh, this is a place, again, where galaxies are jammed too tightly together and there's just too many supergiant black holes radiating deadly radiation. And so ours sticks out like a sore thumb. It's the only one uh, where we see the super, uh, the galaxies and galaxy groups strung out in such a way that uh, there is no gravitational disturbance of any significance for the galaxies in the local group. And we've done it, reasons to believe, is actually create a map of the local group of galaxies. And uh, what we've discovered... Yes, there we go. Uh, Is that we live in a galaxy group that's like none other in the universe. And in our universe, there are literally uh, millions, billions of galaxy groups. But ours is the only one that doesn't contain a single, giant galaxy. Ours is the only one that contains only two large galaxies. Most of them contain dozens of large galaxies. Ours has only two, the Andromeda Galaxy and the Milky Way Galaxy. It's also the only grouping of galaxies where the large galaxies are far apart. What we see in other galaxy groups is the large galaxies are about this far apart. What we see in our local group is that they're very far apart. This is all done to scale. And also we see it as only a few large dwarf galaxies, only five, and uh, then it has several hundred tiny dwarf galaxies that don't show up in this particular image because of how faint they are. But because the Andromeda galaxy is two and a half million light years away, its gravity doesn't disturb the spiral structure of our Milky Way galaxy. And because of the fact that the third biggest galaxy in the group, which is the Large Magellanic Cloud, which you see just below the Milky Way galaxy, it's got just the right mass, just the right diameter, and just the right distance from our Milky Way galaxy, that it actually acts as a funnel, pulling in these tiny dwarf galaxies into the core of our Milky Way galaxy in such a way as to sustain the spiral structure. If spiral galaxies are not consuming on a regular basis, tiny dwarf galaxies, the spiral structure collapses, and now the stars are too close together. So we refer to the large and small Magellanic clouds as the dietitian's for a Milky Way galaxy. They ensure that our Milky Way galaxy gets exactly the right diet to sustain the amazing spiral structure and to keep that structure stable. Now, just a few months ago, Uh, the Event Horizon Telescope team. Uh, People think that the James Webb Space Telescope is the most powerful telescope that we have. Actually, that's not the case. What radio astronomers have done is they've linked together uh, about 20 radio telescopes around the world, and uh, they're able to link them together in such a way as to create a telescope with the equivalent power of a 6,000-mile diameter telescope. And that's the only telescope in the world that's got the resolving power to actually uh, detect and measure the event horizons of black holes. What is an event horizon? That's the distance from a black hole where nothing can escape. However, just outside the event horizon, any matter coming in towards the black hole gets converted into energy with 10 to 42 percent efficiency which explains why we would expect that there would be a bright donut of light around the black hole. And we've only been able to image that for our Milky Way galaxy, and it took four years of dedicated observations to come up with this map. But notice, you do see the event horizon, but this is really quite a fuzzy image. And the problem is, it's very faint. I need to move it along? Yes, thank you. There we go. That just got published a few months ago. It took four years of dedicated observations to develop this image. They're hoping to come up with a better image, but it'll probably take another ten years. But the reason why this was so difficult to detect is that for the last couple of million years, our Milky Way galaxy's supermassive black hole has been on a starvation diet. Most supermassive black holes are pulling at objects as big as moons and planets and stars and giant molecular clouds. Our Milky Way galaxy for the past two million years has been on a diet of tiny comets and tiny asteroids. And therefore, we don't see a lot of light around the event horizon of the black hole. But we do know that our black hole wasn't always that quiet mainly because we see this image here, which shows two gigantic X-ray bubbles, and these bubbles are expanding. As we measure the expansion rate, it tells us about two million years ago, our supermassive black hole was pulling an object about the size of a planet, and it generated deadly radiation. But that was two million years ago. For the last two million years, it's been on a starvation diet and particularly the last 100,000 years has been on an exceptionally uh, weak uh, diet of matter being pulled in, basically just gas clouds, tiny gas clouds coming in. Consequently, during the past 100,000 years, uh, our supermassive black hole has been so quiet that uh, we've been able to develop global civilization and build up a population of billions. And just a few months ago, astronomers discovered that similarly The supermassive black hole that's in the Andromeda Galaxy, it's 35 times bigger than the supermassive black hole in our Milky Way Galaxy. And ordinarily, even though it's two and a half million light years away, that would be a problem for advanced life on planet Earth. But astronomers have discovered, just like our Milky Way Galaxy has been on a starvation diet uh, for the past couple of million years, Likewise, the Andromeda galaxy, at least for the past 100,000 years, has likewise been on a starvation diet, and therefore, advanced life is possible on Earth. And you say, well, if there is a Creator, why would He create black holes? Well, it turns out, if you don't have black holes in the universe, you're going to be missing 25% of the elements in the periodic table, including two elements that are crucial for we humans to exist. Uh, and these are elements that are only made when neutron stars uh, merge together to make black holes. And when that happens, you generate uh, about a quarter of the elements that are, uh, well, half the elements that are heavier than iron. So that's where our uranium comes from, or thorium, or gold, or platinum. Uh, that's where our iodine comes from. And so, uh, if it wasn't for these uh, black holes, there'd be no possibility for life. And one of the papers that I got published in a peer-reviewed journal was this one uh, called uh, Black Holes as Evidence of God's Care. Put that into any search engine, it will pop up, and you can read the whole paper for free. You can also read for free the reviews I got, because I drew three atheistic astrophysicists who reviewed my papers. One of them thought the paper was really good and said, I want this to get published, the other two were really disturbed about the God factor that I was mentioning and said, no, this paper needs to be rejected. But they gave me an opportunity to respond to the reviewers. And you can also see online my responses to the reviewers. And basically what happened is the paper got accepted for publication. And in that particular issue, uh, my paper uh, was uh, first for number of reads. In fact, it, Uh, exceeds by a factor of two. But let me uh, finish this off uh, with what I think is one of the most profound evidences we see for fine-tuning to make our redemption possible, and that has to do uh, with our unique moon. I mean, we see moons all over the solar system, we're actually detecting moons outside of uh, uh, our solar system, but we're noticing these moons are always tiny relative to the mass of the planet. Our moon is more than 50 times bigger than any other known moon uh, relative to the mass of its host planet. For example, our moon comes in at uh, about a a percent and a half the mass of our uh, planet, whereas what's typical is something like 0.01 percent. And that's because our moon formed like no other moon. solar system began with five rocky planets. There was Mercury, Venus, uh, Earth, and Mars, and the planet Thea. But what happened early in the solar system's history, Thea and the Earth collided with one another, which caused the Earth to become more massive, but also created debris cloud around the Earth that coalesced to form the Moon. It explains why we have a relatively small planet orbited by a gigantic Moon. Uh, But during the first 560 million years of the existence of our solar system, what we notice uh, is that our uh, sun was pouring out intense particle radiation, gamma ray radiation, x-ray radiation, and flaring activity that's 100,000 times greater than what is happening today. That takes you up to that little green dotted line. And the radiation coming out from the sun was so intense uh, that it would have sputtered away all of Earth's water and all of Earth's atmosphere. What prevented that from happening was that the Earth at that time had a very strong magnetosphere, much stronger than we have today. However, as scientists studied this, they realized there's no way the Earth could have had that strong enough of a magnetosphere by itself. And they realized the answer was the moon. Now, this is how far apart the Earth and the Moon are right now. But this is how far apart the Earth and the Moon were uh, 4 billion years ago. And because we need to advance the slides, thank you for reminding me of that. That's the Earth and the Moon uh, right now, and uh, this is where they were 4 billion years ago. And because the Moon and the Earth came about as a result of this collision, Earth began with a very hot core, and the Moon began with a very hot core. Both of them had a hot liquid iron core. And because of how close together the Earth and Moon were, uh, the tidal interaction between the Earth and the Moon was sufficient to circulate the liquid iron in both the core of the Moon and the core of the Earth. So both bodies had a magnetosphere, a strong magnetic field that generated a magnetosphere, and because of how close together they were, the magnetosphere coupled. And it was that coupled magnetosphere that prevented the particle radiation from the Sun sputtering away all of our water and all of our atmosphere. And the authors of the research paper concluded their paper by saying this is a habitability requirement. It is the most profound habitability requirement. The only way you can have life on a planet is if you have two planets colliding with one another, just like Thea and the Earth collided, where you get the formation of the Moon, we're both of the hot interior core, and the Moon begins to spiral away uh, from that planet, just like the Moon spirals away uh, from the Earth. If it doesn't have all those features, there's no way that you're going to retain water and atmosphere on the planet. And years ago, when people were working on the planet formation model, they said, we got way too much design here, we need to redo the models in order to eliminate all this amazing design we're seeing here. They redid the models and they came up with even more design. This was all published in the British journal Nature, and uh, Tim Elliott uh, wrote an article saying, all this extra fine-tuning is causing us philosophical disquiet. Well, now that this philosophical disquiet has raised exponentially and explains, too, why we see the history of life that we do on planet Earth, where for the first 560 million years there is no life, the solar radiation would have made that impossible, microbes are much more tolerant to solar radiation, and explains why for the first 3 billion years of life history all we have is microbes the Sun has to quiet down enough to make possible plants and animals, and then there's only a 100,000-year-wide window uh, where the Sun's uh, radiation is quiet enough where we human beings can exist. And then we astronomers have been scouring our galaxy trying to find a star that's luminosity stability is like the Sun. Well, the top figure here basically shows you the luminosity stability of the Sun, what you see at the bottom is a star out of the millions and tens of millions we've looked at that places second. Our star the Sun is five times more stable in its luminosity stability than the second best star we've been able to find. And if that weren't the case, none of you would be able to sit here together uh, this morning. Uh, again, as you walk out, uh, do pick up our book, Always Be Ready. It's free. And remember nothing else from my talk today. I know I was a little technical here. Just remember this, a principle in Job and Psalms. The more we learn about nature, the more evidence we gain for the supernatural handiwork of God that makes possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. Thank you.